You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today is Thursday, March 11th, 2021. This is episode 19 of season three, episode 84 of this podcast. And we've got a couple of things to unpack and analyze and talk about today in no particular order. We're going to look at Democrats trying to lower the voting age to 16. Also a passage of a $1.9 trillion with a T dollar COVID relief package. Also irritable and distracted people, and we want to analyze the sentiment, we should all just mind our own business. What does that mean? What is meant by that? What is our business? Let's take a look at that. But first of all, let's dig into the topic of voting age. How old should somebody be before they can vote? What do you think? Do you think somebody should be 18? Do you think they should be 21? Do you think that's too high of an age? Is that too low of an age? Is that too young even as it stands right now when somebody is 18 or 21 years old? Are they too young to vote? Well, before we answer that question, I think we need to analyze a little bit the expectations that we have for maturity level for people that are that age. And also, we should be asking why we presume that somebody is more mature when they are 18 compared to 16, why we presume that somebody is more capable of making informed life choices, wise decisions when they're 21 as opposed to 18. For that matter, why do we presume that somebody is going to be more mature at the age of, let's say, 25, let's say 30, let's say 35, let's say 45, right? Where's the limit? I was listening to Augustine of Hippo's City of God today quite a lot. I've got almost 20 hours left to go. I I think I actually am probably closer to 19 hours at this point, but it's a very long audio book. It was 45 hours, something like that. I'm ballparking right now, but 45 hour long audio book. And it's uh, been a few weeks, several weeks since I started it, maybe uh, several months actually since I started it. I'm in no particular hurry to make my way through it. I'm just kind of pacing myself as I go. But one of the things that Augustine is talking about at the part that I'm in right now is he's talking about antediluvian records in Genesis for how long people lived. And should we believe the genealogies when they say that so-and-so was born and they had children and they lived to be hundreds of years old? Should we believe that? Or Is that maybe a mistranslation or was that maybe a multiplication error? Was that perhaps 10 times as old as they really were? Maybe they didn't live to be 900 years old. Maybe they lived to be 90 years old. Well, that's easier to believe. But if it's not true, then it isn't what we should believe just because it's easier to believe. Sometimes things that are not true are easier to believe than things that are true because our whole framework for understanding and for assessing what is and is not true needs to be reevaluated. And I think Augustine does a very good job of explaining why 
it's not satisfying, why it's not a compelling uh, interpretation of those genealogies to assume that we just divide the age given in those genealogies by 10 and then we come to the right number. He does a good job, and I'm not going to reiterate his arguments on this podcast. You can go and read City of God for yourself. Good luck. It's a long one, and uh, stick with it because there's a lot of good stuff in there. It isn't scripture. Augustine was not writing canon. And so he has the right and ability to be mistaken on some points, and I think he admits that uh, somewhat candidly at various points throughout. You have to be careful sometimes with people that are good at arguing their case and they're, they're very skilled at communicating. Careful to not presume too much about that just because they might be a better communicator than you are. That doesn't necessarily mean that the conclusions they come to are always more reliable than what you've come to or what you've heard somewhere else. So if Augustine says X, that doesn't necessarily mean that Y is not true, but you have to think about it. So engage that gray matter between your ears if you read Augustine or anybody for that matter. When you're listening to this podcast, don't assume just because I might be a better communicator than most, I might be more confident, I might have found a way to filter out the uhs and the ums and little quirks and eccentricities like that that serve to undermine one's authority when they're trying to talk about a subject. Just because I've read a lot, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of my conclusions are more correct than what you might believe about a certain thing. You might have the right of it, and I might be mistaken. I might just be very good at explaining how wrong I am, whereas you're not as good at explaining the right position. And that's fine. We should work to be not just correct, but good at explaining and articulating what is correct. And we should also be good at distinguishing between when somebody is good at articulating things that are mostly true, but not might might not be 100% true. But one of the things that I find interesting when you look at the genealogies in Genesis is this idea that people lived for centuries instead of decades. In our day, people live for decades, and if they're really, really healthy or lucky or whatever you want to call it, if they're blessed with good genetics and a good uh, circumstance in life and a good attitude and a good diet maybe, if they're blessed with those things in uh, coordination with one another, they might live to be over 100 years old. But If they live to be in their 90s, we say they've lived a nice, long, full life. And then we come to Genesis and we read these genealogies talking about people living for 967 years old or 800 and something or 700 and something or 600 and something years old. And all of a sudden, if you're grading on a curve, 90 years old even doesn't seem like that long of a life. We take somebody living for 20 years and having a car accident and passing away in the prime of life, we take that and we say that they died so young, right? They died too young. And that's fine. I'm not disputing that. But wouldn't it be something if even at 200 years old, we say, man, he was so young, right? He had so much life ahead of him yet. Well, we might say something like that if the genealogies were our present condition and people were living to be 700, 800, 900 years old, left and right. We knew people that were living that old. And then we find out about our great, 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 great uncle who only lived to be 300 years old. And we say, oh man, that's just too bad. He had so much more life left in him. 
I think there's a kind of euthanasia emotionally, socially, that is baked into the way that we treat old people. And we treat them like they're useless, like they have nothing left to offer to society, to our families. Once they get to 60, 70, 80 years old, then that is just foolish. That is a sign of our folly. And uh, I would even venture wickedness that we think that way. We don't think rightly when we treat older people as though they have nothing left to give. And as if we, in our infinite wisdom that we gained by just being born later than they, we can take it from here. You guys just sit this one out. You've lived a nice long life and you can just wait to die now. And we're going to run things from here on out. that's, That's just kind of silly. And I don't think that kind of talk would have passed muster with the 90-year-olds who were around in Noah's day, with the 90-year-olds that were around in Enoch's day, right? I don't think that they would have taken that seriously. They would have said to the 90-year-old, you know what, young pup, why don't you let me handle this? I've been around for a while. I've seen a thing or two. I can take care of uh, this one. You leave the decision-making to me. Or maybe at hundreds of years old, They'd have the wisdom and they'd be sharing that wisdom with the 90-year-olds to not be talking down so much to the 30-year-olds because in the grand scheme of things, the longer you live, the more you study, the more you pay attention, the more you realize that there's a lot to know and there's a lot of mystery and there's a lot of things that we maybe don't have figured out just yet. The more we find out, the more we find out that there is more to find out. And the more you study, the more you realize that there is so much more to know than a finite human being, at least in this imperfect fallen world with imperfect genetics. This fallen race that we are now, short of God restoring us, are just not capable. We are not capable of assessing and understanding fully and knowing fully and appreciating and acting wisely in accordance to fully just yet. So that brings us back to this question of lowering the voting age to 16. And I want to ask you how old somebody should be before they're able to get married without a stigma being attached to that. If we lower the voting age to 16, are we also going to encourage people to be getting married and starting their families at 16? Why or why not? Should we be lowering the drinking age to 16? How about lowering the age that you can buy tobacco or firearms at to 16? Should we be lowering the age for everything to 16? Or is it just voting? Is it just voting? And why would it be only voting? Why would it be okay that you have equal say in who the president is going to be at 16 years old, but you can't get married just yet? You can't buy a gun. You can't buy tobacco. You can't buy alcohol, you can't do a whole lot of things when you're 16 just yet. Or you can, but it's frowned upon. But we're going to vote at 16, and we're going to think that that goes very well. Why the inconsistency, right? Honest question. If we are going to say okay to green lighting 16-year-olds voting, why not say okay to a whole lot of other things that adults would do? Are we recognizing that a 16-year-old is an adult near enough? 
if we're going to recognize that they're an adult near enough when it comes to voting, then why not just go the whole way and say everything is open to them? At 16 years old, you should be finished with not only high school, but you could, in some places, if you're really dedicated and apply yourself, you could be finished with college too. There are people that have skipped grades and really focused up and they knew what they wanted to do and they not only finished up high school, they finished up college too. And they've started their life before they hit what we in this society call legal adulthood. So why just lower the voting age to 16? Why not open the whole world of adult responsibility to 16-year-olds? I think the reason and the explanation and the answer that seems most obvious to me is that Democrats are thinking that the younger the voters are, the more likely, especially if they've gone through the indoctrination center that is American public education, they're going to vote Democrat. They're going to vote progressive. They're going to vote for leftism. They're going to vote for socialism. They're going to vote for these things that Bernie Sanders talks about, that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talks about, they're going to think that those sound awful good because that's what the public education system has been conditioning them to think should sound really good and what works and what's been standing in the way of our achievement of utopia to date is all of these superstitious notions, all these backwards thinking notions about private property and individual liberty, except for individual liberty to change your gender and have sex with anything that moves and things like that. You can do that at any age, but you shouldn't necessarily have liberty to do anything and everything that might affect the collective good. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And if you're the one and we're the many and we think that it harms the collective good or the global good, the global community, for you to say certain things, think certain things, then whatever age you're at, we're not going to give you the option to do these things. We're not going to give you the option to say these things. We're going to have you apologize if you read Dr. Seuss or if you say something. It could be misconstrued as being racist or sexist or homophobic or xenophobic or whatever, whatever we make up next that is a convenient excuse to destroy people that get in our way to make an example of the people who stand up to us. Our 16-year-olds of a mindset in our day and age to oppose that trend, maybe that would be nice. That would be exceptionally fortuitous if the COVID lockdowns, especially in Democrat-controlled cities and states, especially if Biden tries to push for a nationwide COVID lockdown, to fight this virus, to shut down the virus. The young people who have missed out on a part of their childhood as they see it, if they're 15, so often they think that they're still children at 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20 20 plus. They think of themselves still as children. They act like children. They should still be on their parents' insurance. So they've missed out on a part of their childhood. And if they blame Democrats in any measure for that, if they haven't been completely brainwashed by the media into believing it's all the bad orange man's fault, it's all flyover country's fault, it's all backward-thinking, repressive, puritanical, handmaiden's tale, Christian's fault that the COVID lockdowns were necessary, they might just become 
the best conservatives you've ever seen. And that would be nice. I don't know that we should hold our breaths and expect that to happen, but it could happen. It could be that the pendulum swings and the next counterculture is a conservative counterculture. You had the man in the 60s being the military-industrial complex and people that were sending kids off to fight in Vietnam and making sure that everybody had a crew cut and watched Leave it to Beaver and drove a certain kind of car and lived in a certain kind of neighborhood and watched certain kinds of TV shows and listened to certain kinds of music. That rigid conformity in part contributed to the 1960s, but also that rigid conformity was necessary because there were conditions already in place which made the keepers of society feel like that rigid outward conformity was necessary. Those seeds were planted decades before in the American public education system as John Dewey devised it. And I would say the Democrats trying to lower the voting age to 16, you can go a couple of directions with that. Well, for one thing, I think it goes to show that they don't have a lot of confidence in the staying power of the education that kids are getting these days if they don't think that somebody even at 18, 19, 20 can be relied upon to vote Democrat like they used to be. If they think you've got to recruit and enlist 16-year-olds now to get the votes up in time for the midterm elections in 2022, if they're that worried about losing their grip on the House, the Senate, the White House, the Supreme Court, whatever, in the next few years, that they don't think they can trust to people who have left their clutches in the public schools, that might just be a good sign that their power is slipping away from them. And it needs to slip away from them. And if it doesn't slip away from them, we need to pry it out of their fingers because what they want to do with that power is run your life in a tyrannical fashion to restrict you to only what they think is in the collective good, what they think is in your best interest. Not that they know what that is necessarily, but they think they do, or they'll say that they do, because at a certain point, the truth really just doesn't matter anymore. They just want power, and you standing up to them doesn't matter if you have good reasons, if your survival depends on it, if your livelihood depends on it, if you're going bankrupt or being able to pay your mortgage or not depends on it. It doesn't matter because at a certain point, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And it's in the collective good that you not undermine their authority and be a bad example to other people. So when you go up to the drive-thru and you ask for your drink to be passed to you, you'll be told you need to have a mask on. Well, I don't have a mask. Well, I can hand you a mask. Can't you just hand me my drink? I can hand you a mask. Hmm. We're not thinking here very clearly, are we? Unless, unless... What we're thinking about all along is not so much health and safety. It's more control. It's more who's in control of me, and I'd better do what they say and not say boo about it, not talk back, not ask why when I'm told to jump, just say how high, right? We're not thinking clearly except in terms of control, and that is to say who's in control of me and who's in control of you. And if I'm supposed to be in control of you when you're in my space, and you're not allowing me to control you in ways that are inappropriate for me to control you, well, now you've just upset the paradigm. We can't have that. we got to squash that. Come on, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. We need you to help us vote ourselves more power. This also connects with the passage of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, so-called COVID 
relief package because I don't think that it's first and foremost about COVID relief. I think it's first and foremost about wealth redistribution. I think it's first and foremost about picking winners and losers. And it's about trying to buy votes. They could have passed a beefier compensation package to pay the damages on all of the lost revenue, all of the lost income that people missed out on because their businesses were forced to close, because their employers were forced to tell them to stay home because they were quote-unquote non-essential. All of that money that should have been paid out in damages by the politicians themselves who are millionaires is just printed money now. And we're going to print as much money as we can imagine printing. So long as there's enough votes, we're going to do it because that's all that really matters is the truth being depended on counting noses. Argumentum ad populum is a pernicious logical fallacy, which we in a country run by Democrats are entirely vulnerable to. You can't argue with people who think that the truth is a matter of counting noses because they will always be able to wave vaguely to some group of people over there that disagree with you. And if you're the only one saying what you're saying, and those 10 people over there agree with them, well, that settles it. I don't have to listen to you anymore. You say something that they think they can twist and misconstrue as being sexist or racist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever, fill in the blank. If they can dismiss you because the majority, as they call it, the Bolsheviks, who, by the way, in Russia were just, uh, that was just a word for the majority. They started calling themselves the majority, even though they weren't the majority. They weren't taken seriously because they weren't the majority. And then all of a sudden, they gain a certain kind of momentum and they become a certain kind of foregone conclusion. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that they call themselves the majority and they're allowed to call themselves the majority. And then what do you know? Before long, they either are the majority or they have enough of the majority scared into submission to empower them, to give them what they want. And that's where we're at. When I go into King Supers to pick up groceries tonight and I find that only four or five or six or seven people in a grocery store of hundreds of people are similarly unmasked to what I am because I'm not going to wear your damn mask if I don't have to, I know that we are in very real danger of a kind of Bolshevism here, wherein the left in this country says, we're the majority. Are they? Well, they are near enough if everybody's too scared to even go outside their house without a mask on. And that's what they're looking for. It's supposed to be a kind of priming the pump. It's a kind of grooming, wherein they get you to follow a simple command, and then the next command is that much easier for you to follow as well, even though the next one is costlier. You gave in pretty easily on the last one, or enough people around you gave in pretty easily on the last one, and you've already stepped in it, so you'd better not step out of line again, because we've got your number. We're watching you now. We now know that you're a nonconformist, and we can't have you disobeying. We can't have you causing trouble. So we might just have to arrest you for disturbing the peace, for being disruptive. We told you to get to the back of the bus. Why aren't you doing what we told you to do? Don't you know the law? Don't you know the way this works? Don't you know this is private property? Don't you know 
This is freedom of speech. If we silence your speech, that's going to be our defense for Twitter. So we're going to say we have the right to censor anybody we disagree with, anybody who's saying something we don't like, anybody who's espousing a political view, a religious conviction that we don't like, in the name of free speech. Boy, howdy, that's Orwellian. The Ministry of Truth is going to spread lies in the interest of preserving the narrative. And so they'll say that censoring you is in the interest of free speech because we can't have you saying those things that we say are untrue or else it might not leave room for the things that we are saying that are true, even though the things that we're saying are true are actually, in fact, highly disputed and, in my humble opinion, but also objectively true, the things that they're saying are true or false. Two plus two is not five. No matter how hard you press your boot into my neck, two plus two is four. It is four. It has always been four. It will always be four. And you can't find some clever little argument to argue way, argue your way into another outcome. There just isn't another outcome. Two plus two is four. And when you threaten me and get all bent out of shape because I say two plus two is four, while you're telling me to say two plus two equals five, that tells me that truth is not a value to you. Control, power is a value to you. And it's just a matter of time before that anger builds into a murderous rage which is willing to destroy anybody who gets between you and what you have committed yourself to, unless you repent, right? That's the other option. The other option available to you is to repent, to apologize, own that mistake. That was an evil thing. Say you're sorry, and I'll forgive you, right? It happens to the best of us. I'll forgive you. God forgive you. Repent to God. Turn away from that. Turn away from that sinful attitude, because it is. It's wicked. It's malicious. It is depraved. No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. But that is also to say it is a temptation to evil, to sin, to malice, to wickedness. You're abusing your brother who is also created in God's image. You're abusing him when you try to compel him to say things that are not true or you try to prevent him from saying things that are true. All because it might interfere with your grip on power. That's wrong. Did you know one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And that, to my mind, is one of the strongest arguments for biblical Christian liberty that I can think of. Now, we're not to use our liberty as an occasion to sin. Yes, correct, right? And somebody will counter, some very clever person will say, ah, yes, liberty, we shouldn't have liberty because we're only going to do what's in our nature to do. Aren't we? We're not really truly free, so we're going to do depraved things. Ah, yes, but so are the people who are trying to restrict your liberty. That's just it. If you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus and you want other people to believe in Jesus, you want to be free to worship and to honor Jesus. That's the whole reason why this country was founded. Now, you can read the revisionists and you can take their word for it if you want to. It's easy. There's a lot of people that think that. And they're wrong. They're no more right for being lots, for being many. Sometimes democracy is the rule of the majority, and the majority is an ass. And they're not so smart as they convince one another that they are by the sound, the cacophony of their voices in unison saying the same thing. They're marching in lockstep 
we all were dancing around this pile of burning books, Dr. Seuss went on the bonfire, and we all cheered. So therefore, it's right, because the truth is decided by what we all say collectively are our values. That's nonsense. That's complete nonsense. When Cortez and the Spaniards arrived in the New World about 500 years ago, they found Aztec civilization sacrificing captives by the tens of thousands to the corn god so that the next harvest would be plentiful. If the majority of the Mexica, the Aztecs, if the majority of those people thought that this was a very fine idea and very good and very virtuous, that doesn't mean that it was so. It doesn't mean that it was good in Aztec society, but it wouldn't be good in Spanish society. No, it's objectively evil because it violates God's standard of right conduct. The Jim Crow South wasn't virtuous if you could get the majority of whites in the Jim Crow South to sign on to segregation, into separate but equal, into turning a fire hose and attack dogs on people who were marching for their right to vote, their right to ride at the front of the bus if they get there first, their right to go to a school where the white kids go, to a university where the white kids go, to run for office, to not have a cross burnt in their front yard. Now, when I turn to that kind of an example, you immediately catch my point because you have been conditioned, like I have in this society, to believe that racism and slavery are the absolute worst evil in the history of mankind. But it's not racism that's at the root of evil. Racism is a fruit of a sinful, fallen human nature, which loves to find excuses for abusing and stealing from and envying and resenting and hating its brother. So you find the passage of a COVID relief, so-called $1.9 trillion package, and the lowering of the voting age to 16, and the demonization of conservatives who live in flyover country, who believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, and there are only two genders, who believe that God made man in his image, male and female, who believe in private property, who believe in the right to self-defense, who believe in the right to bear arms, who believe in the right to free speech, and freedom of religion, who believe in the right to live according to the dictates of their conscience, because that's what freedom of religion really is. It's not running for president and then having your press secretary say, well, he goes to church regularly. Yeah, but he's also for partial birth abortion, which is entirely antithetical to the scriptures. He's not a Christian. Going to church doesn't make him a Christian. That's nonsense. If I go to the hospital every day and I'm mopping the floors and I'm cleaning the toilets, that doesn't mean you're going to come to me to get your brain surgery done. It doesn't make me a physician. It doesn't make me a doctor. Going to the hospital regularly doesn't make me a qualified medical professional any more than Biden going to church regularly makes him a good Christian. His positions are how you know whether he is a Christian. And in his case, he's antithetical to the things of God. He's for wickedness and folly and evil. And the fact that he cloaks all of that behind religion is an even worse kind of evil. I wish he was just an honest atheist, quite honestly. 
Because at least in that case, you could say, well, it's a logically consistent worldview. Moving on, let's talk about irritable and distracted people just really briefly. I find it interesting just how irritable people have been with COVID. But I think that part of the irritation that people have is that they're only thinking of themselves. And what I mean by that is they feel inconvenienced and they are being inconvenienced. And when they resent what's happening, are they resenting it first and foremost because it's happening to them or because they care about their loved ones and they care about the people around them? When they speak up against this stuff, are they speaking up because it's their rights that are being trampled on or are they speaking up because, by golly, the people they care about are being trampled on? And that's wrong. Somebody needs to speak up for these people, for my people, for my family, for my friends, for my community. This is wrong what you're doing to the people that I care about. I think the reason why a lot of people are irritable is because they feel personally put out and they're afraid of being called selfish because they are selfish. Similarly, I think you have a lot of people that are very distracted and they're not fully engaged in what's going on because their coping mechanism is avoidance. They're afraid to look at what is going on honestly because then they might feel responsible to do something about it and they don't want to do something about it. And so they don't know what to do about it because they don't want to do anything about it. And so they stop further up the road before they get to that crossing. They don't want to take either fork in the road and so they're just going to camp out until this all blows over, until the dilemma is passed, or maybe they'll go back where they came from. They'll regress. They'll understand and know even less than they really do, or at least that's what they'll let on. They'll say that they forgot or they weren't paying attention, and maybe they weren't because they closed their eyes, they closed their ears, they stopped paying attention because they are committed to doing nothing about this. I think that is... Unfortunate, both sides of that coin are selfish. Irritable people and distracted people not engaging the subject matter of the present is not loving their neighbor as they love themselves. We think very often of transgressions of love thy neighbor as the self as being about being mean and ugly and rude and vicious and destructive. You're going to attack this person. You're going to steal from them. You're going to murder them. You're going to destroy them. Sometimes not loving your neighbor as you love yourself takes the form of the Good Samaritan story, wherein the very pious people passed by on the other side of the road pretended not to see the man beaten and left dying on the side of the road. They passed by because they didn't want to be responsible to help him. Their hearts grew cold and hard and lifeless because they didn't want to help. They didn't want to feel guilty for not helping. And so they made good excuses for doing nothing and moving on. The Good Samaritan stops everything, puts his plans and purposes on hold, and he engages with that stranger to make sure that He's taken care of. He's looked after. And that's how we need to orient ourselves if we are lovers of God, is we have to not be lovers of ourselves, first and foremost, unless we're prepared to love our neighbor 
in the same way that we love ourselves. Because our neighbor is made in God's image. And if we can't love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then we really don't love God either. You can't say, I love God, but you hate your neighbor. You are apathetic about your neighbor. Your neighbor is hungry and cold and homeless and naked. And you shut up your bowels of compassion, as the scriptures say. Now, this isn't an argument for socialism. It's not an argument for a government program. I think that government programs very often are a front for corruption and for people getting uh, votes, buying votes, bribing the populace, their constituents, to keep them in office, keep them living high on the hog, on the public dole. And that is also a product of apathy on the part of those people from whom the elected representatives derive their power. From the consent of the governed is power derived. Even in a tyrannical system of government, the people give consent, actively or passively. So what we have on our hands now is confusion and chaos, I hope, is a passing fancy. I don't know how much to hold my breath and expect that. God knows for sure, and I'm not Nostradamus, and neither are you, so don't go getting fatalistic and don't be naive and have an overly rosy view and assume that everything's going to be fine. It's probably not going to all be fine. It's probably not going to be as bad as we can imagine, but we need to trust God either way. We need to not be thinking first and foremost about how this all affects us only and stop there. We need to be thinking about the interests of those around us and thinking of ourselves in humility, esteeming ourselves as less important than we probably do. And part of the way you do that is you embrace the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You do that by loving your neighbor intentionally, those around you. It might be your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your children, your neighbor, your coworker, that boss who gets super irritable and is very abrasive, that customer who is demanding, who complains about everything, for whom your best efforts are never good enough, those slanderous people who resent you and they want to destroy your reputation, who talk bad about you when you're not around. Love those people because they're created in God's image. They don't deserve it, but neither did we. If Christ died for us, we didn't deserve it either. And that's part of what is meant by loving as we were first loved by him. We love because he first loved us, the scriptures say. And we need to think about the way that he loved us. How did he love us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That doesn't mean that we cast our pearls before swine. That doesn't mean that we're naive and that we act like doormats. No, 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 no. He's not given us a spirit of timidity, but of boldness and a strong mind. Jesus says, do not cast your pearls before swine. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. So be prudent about it. Don't be resentful or bitter. But love. Love well. 
love God, fear God first and foremost, and then from that you'll actually have the capacity, if you meditate on the love of God, you'll have the capacity to love the people that are difficult in your life to love right now. Maybe it's people in your own home you've been stuck with for entirely too long, and you guys are way past the point at which you've gotten on each other's nerves. That was a long time ago. But you've got to love that person. And maybe in you loving them, God changes something in your heart to where you understand his love for you better. And you're more thankful. And that builds up and up and up. And maybe that is a good testimony to that person that is being so hard to love right now. And maybe they benefit from that. I'm saying all this, and it probably sounds like I've got it all figured out, and I don't. I have that piece figured out, and I'm going to try to be faithful to that piece. And I would encourage you to be faithful as well. And that's part of why I'm doing the podcast, honestly. I'm I'm trying to think through these things. And I'm trying to be a good example. If this is what I bring to the table, if this is what I've been given opportunity, these are the talents that the master has entrusted to me. I want to invest them. I don't want to bury them in a field. If I can do this in a way that builds you up, then I think God is honored by that. I want to honor God with that. And I think that loves my neighbor as I love myself. So there you have it. Should we all just mind our own business? Yeah. Yeah, we should. But we should think about what exactly is our business? Is our business just going to work, doing our job? Mm, Let me double check my job description again. Oh, you asked me to help you in this? Mm, It's not my job. Oh, what? Oh, I'm not doing anything right now? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not. I could help you, but I'm not going to because I'm just like that. Because I'm selfish and I enjoy being able to make you feel unwanted because it makes me feel important or something, I guess. I don't know. No, 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 no. What is my business? If I work for an employer, my business is whatever helps advance the best interest of the company. So if my core job description is maintaining the instrumentation and electronics, the safety systems, if that's my core job function, then somebody asks me to go and pick up paper towels next time I'm running by Walmart. If somebody asks me to order a new clock for the wall or new light bulbs, if I see that the trash needs to be taken out, the floor needs swept, toilet needs clean, If I'm asked to make a phone call, get some big important piece of equipment coming, do I ask whether that's an INE function or do I just jump in and roll my sleeves up and get to it because this is the company I work for? What's my job? My job is to see to the best interest of the company. And when it's in a particular sphere, I'm going to focus on that. And if I don't have anything else to do, or if there's something more urgent that I can do to help, I'm going to do that. So anyway, that's all I've got for this episode. I hope it was a benefit to you. One of these episodes, I really need to go through and answer a question from from a listener. Uh, Well, actually, I don't know if he's a listener. He's a, a reader of On The Rock's blog. He's read a number of my articles, and he reached out to me. I don't even know his name. He wouldn't give me his name when he emailed. He just said that uh, he was uh, an anonymous person, right? He was worried about being doxxed. 
And he had some questions that I didn't think his questions were all that uh, scandalous or controversial, but he must live in some place where they would be seen as scandalous and controversial. And so he's concerned about that. But he asked me a number of questions, a number of really big questions. He had kind of a stream of consciousness going in the way he unpacked and connected all these thoughts and wonderings. And I need to get to that. I need to get to that list again and read it out for you and uh, try to address those. But for now, I wanted to talk about this today. It's been just a really, really busy season, as I said in the last episode. So I'm not recording like I was for a while there. We're kind of shifting gears, trying to take care of things as they come up and as other things become a higher priority. We're going to deal with those for a season and God willing, we'll live and do this or that. I'm not going to boast and say, I'm going to be coming back to you tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon. I have a job to do, a core function, and I've got a family to take care of. And so we'll see, right? Maybe I record another episode tomorrow. Maybe it's next week. We'll see. But in any event, I hope this one was an encouragement to you. Hope it helped you out. Hit me up. Let me know what you think. Reach out to me at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com or leave a voice message here on Anchor FM. Check out also the garrettashleymulletshow.com. There is a website now for the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. You can find it at thegarrettashleymulletshow.com. Feel free to send me some feedback on there. Hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Anchor or... Uh, about a half dozen other different platforms you can check us out on. But anyway, that's all I got for now. Till next time, thanks for listening, and God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you heard today, visit the homepage for On The Rocks blog at onthe.rocks. Also, check out On The Rocks blog podcast with Micah Hirschberger, weekly on Anchor FM. If you haven't yet done so, hit subscribe to this podcast also. And you can reach Garrett Ashley Mullet with any comments, questions, or complaints at garrettmullet at gmail.com. Hello, this is Garrett Ashley Mullet, host of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM, and also chief editor and writer at On The Rocks blog since 2015. I have just published my first book. It is available on paperback and Kindle from Amazon.com right now. Are you thinking about homeschooling? Is someone you know considering it? No shortage of books will help you figure out how to do it. This is a book about why you should. Written from the perspective of a homeschooling father of seven who was himself homeschooled growing up, this is an encouragement to fathers and mothers to think rightly about their children's education. What our children believe about God, themselves, one another, and the universe, these are all features of their education, and the worldview our children develop is downstream of the sort of education they receive. And this is why we homeschool. Maybe you are a parent of homeschooling children and you could use some encouragement. Perhaps your local school shut down and now remote learning or homeschooling has been forced on you. Now you could use some help finding motivation to make the best of it. Or maybe you have a friend or family member considering homeschooling their children. Rather than starting you off with another home education how-to, let us start with why we homeschool. And as we figure out the reasons we should do this thing, the way to do it will be made far easier. Just go right on over to Amazon.com and type in, and this is why we homeschool in the search results. It'll come right up.
Order your copy today.